Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. And today, what we're going to do is another flashback. And the reason that I'm doing this is one, because it's Memorial Day, and two, because I think it's important to go back and think about what we were thinking about as physicians during the beginning of COVID-19 so that we can have some perspective on our impressions at the time and our impressions now. So this is a conversation that I had with Dr. Anthony Padani, um, Dr. Shane Stevenson, and Dr. Matt Lunning. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. And today I had another COVID conversation with my friends, um, Matt Lunning, uh, an oncologist, Tony Padani, who is a pharmacologist, and Shane Stevenson, who is a family medicine doc. And so we talked about their perspectives on what they've seen clinically, what they think is going to happen with COVID-19, what some of the different mechanisms for different treatments will be for patients who have this disease, and also our time frame in terms of where they foresee this uh, occurring and, and potentially for second waves. So I, I think it was a really interesting conversation, a really fun conversation for me to try to pick their brains about what's going on. And I hope it was for you. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. One of the things that it took me a while to wrap my mind around was the need for utilizing a silicone hydrogel lens for my patients who wear daily contact lenses. Nearly all of my patients who wear a frequent replacement lens wear a silicone hydrogel material. However, until a few years ago, very few of my one-day lens prescriptions were for silicone hydrogel. Part of this was the options we had available, and part of it was cost. At least my perception of the cost. What I was forgetting is that patients wearing a one-day lens are still wearing their lenses for 14 to 16 hours, and they would benefit from a more oxygen-permeable lens. You may have the perception, as I did, that a one-day lens made with silicon hydrogel material are going to be too costly for our patients. However, studies show that patients want us to offer them the healthiest options regardless of price. I make it simple to the patient. I explain why I'm prescribing a particular lens based on their complaints or based on what I'm seeing clinically. It sounds like this. Bob, you're wearing a contact lens for most of your day, and in the past, we didn't have as many options for putting you in a daily lens that also allows for optimal oxygen transmission. We now have an option that does this and is as cost-effective as older lenses that you're in. I would love to see how this lens feels to you and looks on your eyes. Done. That's the conversation, and I haven't had one patient who has not wanted to try it. Clarity One Day is an affordable silicon hydrogel lens our patients are thankful we discussed with them. Check out the show links for references and see for yourself how to move beyond cost and focus on what's best for our patients. I, I want to say thanks for coming on and doing this. It's kind of weird that we all live within either 30 yards from one another or uh, or within a couple miles from one another and we can't do this in person because um, these are crazy times. But, it's a uh, new normal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> Well, so, yeah. you know, I wanted to convene this because I think we've all sort of had conversations recently about, you know, even as close to, as a month ago about uh, the fact that, you know, what, what kind of impact this was going to have on us um, in terms of a, a standpoint nationally and also locally. And each one of you sort of bring unique perspectives. You know, Tony, you're obviously, Tony's a, a pharmacologist at the Nebraska Med Medical Center specializing in uh, TB treatment and HIV treatment. Uh, Shane Stevenson is a primary care physician, a family, family medicine doc here in Omaha as well. And, um, and Matt Lunning is an oncologist here in Omaha. And so we all sort of uh, have 
different spans on how we're seeing COVID-19 impact our patients and our communities. And so I, I wanted to sort of open it up to see, one, has anybody's opinion on this impact, has it changed since we spoke a few months ago or maybe a month ago? Um, I recall we were all at a fundraiser. I believe we were all at a fundraiser or, or right around that time. And I think the sentiment was, even Tony, I, I remember talking to you, is that uh, it's probably going to just be like the flu. So what's the word? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously the situation in the U.S. changed rapidly. I think the event was, um, I think that was, what, mid-February um, that we were all together. And, um, you know, this thing was pretty much limited to, the, to, the, to Asia. Um, you know, last week, my family and I, we were, we were actually out of state. And I was, I was texting with some of the ID docs back here in the state, you know, just trying to get a, a feel for what was going on. And, you know, earlier in the month, you know, things seemed still pretty calm. Um, but by the time, let's see, would have been last or two weekends, two weekends ago rolled around, you know, that their, their tone really started changing and it was, uh, you know, things were really starting to ramp up and, um, we, they could tell that, you know, watching what was going on in Italy, that, that this front was, was going to be here soon. And, um, you know, it was just the, the tone in the, in the text messages was, was changing almost by the day. So. Tony, have you seen anything different in your clinic, uh, patients that you're, that you're treating that are already immunocompromised? Is there any concern or, uh, issues you've seen yet? You know, we haven't, but we've, we've dialed back um, a lot. We've, we've tried to uh, go to telehealth and hmm. reschedule a lot of our appointments. Um, so we've, we've really scaled back the number of patients that we're seeing in the clinic, um, especially in the last week. So um, outside of that, um, we really haven't, we haven't seen much difference. Have you guys administered much telehealth before this? Um, the, phys the physicians hadn't. Um, the pharmacy group had had rolled out some telehealth stuff. Um, you know, we see patients from about Grand Island to the West and then into, uh, the Western part of Iowa going East. Um, so we've, we've tried to use, at least on the pharmacy side, we've tried to use telehealth. We've probably implemented some things. Oh, maybe in the last 12, 15 months. So, so we had some experience with it on the pharmacy side, but, you know, just rolling it out as on a wider scale. Um, it's been a little, little interesting. Yeah, well, I think it. Go ahead. Matt. I, I think it. I think it really. Uh, you know, to say telehealth, uh, it can mean multiple things. There's one, one where you're just picking up the phone and discussing results uh, with a patient or their prescription. You know, dosing or how things may change. And there's actually the telehealth where you're actually billing. And I think that's where the difference lies. I haven't. I've done a ton of telehealth where I'm picking up the phone and talking to patients or to caregivers. Uh, to make to make decisions, there's it's another thing when you're actually billing for it and actually charting uh, in the electronic medical record from a from a kind of a charge capture standpoint. And I think that's where the transition's coming right now um, is you know just getting emails about the complexity that it's going to take to do one of those visits um, is definitely going to take a, a different workflow, um, and it may change our workflow forever. Um, cause you're going to start asking yourself, do I really need to have that patient travel three hours, uh, to come have that conversation that may be 15 to 20 minutes 
when I could, you know, I've done it over telehealth now. Um, and the patients may just start to expect that. Um, and it may just interlace a different level of care um, that may be for the better, actually. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And from like a primary care perspective, and at least a Methodist, um, we're probably a little behind right now in, in, in regards to telehealth and, and launching it. Um, we've certainly scaled back a ton over the last uh, seven to 10 days as well. Um, all of our patients older than 60 for any sort of well visit. We've just postponed them out 90 days. Um, we're seeing healthy people that still want to come in and, in the morning and then the afternoon is any sort of limited acute care. Um, we're hoping to launch telehealth on Monday. Um, but yeah, I, I think kind of actually the nuts and bolts of it will be interesting. I know uh, clinic wide for us, they just sent out a, a couple of 30 minute videos and are like, uh, <laughs> watch this and then uh, be ready to do a televisit. Yeah, well, I think it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult too because uh, telehealth without protected time is tele disaster. Uh, yeah. Because you, I mean, in a primary care clinic, if you're saying, "Well, I'm going to set aside this time for telehealth," well, if it doesn't doesn't work out uh, well, and you have acute visits coming in, as if we expect this surge to actually surge, you know, um, you could be having uh, double, triple booked, and then you know you're going to those telehealth visits are going to get uh, left in the dust. I think. Yeah. Well, what are you seeing then as far as, you know, Shane, from a primary care standpoint, have you had, have you had any COVID patients? Have you had any patients that are concerned about COVID yet? We have an abundance of people concerned about COVID. Uh, I would say the brunt of, of our, our volume, uh, at least in our practice has been way down. Um, and at least in, in Methodist from a primary care perspective, like we were one of the busier practices, um, the group of, of seven of us, um, so a lot more phone calls, a lot more email messages, um, total volume down. It's been changing daily kind of what our workflow is trying to be. Of We're trying to basically triage any respiratory visits over the phone and keep them home and, and keep them um, either going to a testing site, even though I, I think everybody here knows testing is very limited and who's getting tested is um seems fairly random and somewhat selective um so and, and that's a struggle is uh, sometimes we have people calling and say i want to be tested we say we don't have the tests and um we think you need to stay home you're stable um you're not short of breath um just self-quarantine uh, but they want to know um but we just don't have the resources right now for that what about you, Matt? Have you seen anybody yet that um, with your immunocompromised patient population? I think the question's being asked um, in different in different settings. Um, it's evolving. You know, when you are limited um, in the number of tests that you have, um, I think you have to uh, think about where the where the most value is going to be. So, if you have you know patients who have have symptoms or have had known exposures and known travel. A history that was the first kind of wave of patients um, that were being tested because I think your pre-test probability is the highest in that in that situation. Um, as testings become more available, um, I think that those uh, now symptom directed, as we kind of uh, alluded to, community spread um, coming, 
um, and then really taking care of the the workforce and the healthcare force because I think that's going to be the biggest thing that we're seeing in New York City right now, um, or on, you know, legitimately on both coasts is you know exposures, the unknown exposures, healthcare workers being out of um, out of rotation, and that's where um, you know medical errors can occur by overwork. Um, uh, you know, from that from that standpoint, so. Um, and then your other, as, as alluded to, um, your at-risk population for higher case fatality rates. So your older individuals, your individuals who are severely immunosuppressed um, or with, you know, uh, comorbid, uh, significant comorbid conditions to where, you know, it, it one, one hit to their lungs, you know, could be fatal. The, the thing you, you mentioned, Matt, um, if the surge is going to surge and this is something that I've, I've been interested in for the last couple of weeks in particular is that uh, all the models that we're using right now are, uh, are assuming that we're going to be exactly like Italy. And there are certainly things, and this is open to everybody, there are certain things that you know, we, we are going to be similar to Italy, but there are certain things about Italy that are unique to Italy. And so um, the question I've been really asking is, are there other models? The fact that we haven't been testing in mass, right? Like you and I couldn't get a test or none of us on this call could get a test right now. Um, and we wouldn't test for antibodies to see if we had been infected previously and we've now resolved it asymptomatically. And the estimates that I've seen are anywhere from, you know, uh, five times the number of people that have symptoms will be asymptomatic to eight to 10 times will be asymptomatic. And so doesn't that, so then, then it makes me wonder if that's the case. And when you look at some of the, the uh, analysis of like the uh, people who were screened from who, the United States, uh, people who were living in Wuhan in uh, January, when we came and grabbed them and we quarantined them and we tested them, uh, if you assume that they were assimilated in the general population, about 2% of them tested positive for COVID-19. And so then if you extrapolate that data out and assume that that's an entire Wuhan district at that time, that, that wound up being with like 175,000 positives in the entire community that, that would have been symptomatic or asymptomatic. But because we're only testing the symptomatic patients, that's going to elevate, it's going to reduce the number of positives. And since, uh, and then when you look at the death rate on those number of positives, it's going to be artificially elevated. Um, so what do you guys think about that? Has, does that cross your mind? It, it probably doesn't make any difference to how any of us are managing our practices because I'm managing it the same way, Shane, you are as a primary care physician is, you know, we're, we're basically limiting our care to urgent and emergent care at this point. But it makes me wonder if, if what we're doing in, in these times is just because we don't know how prevalent the disease is because we're not testing everybody. Um, is it necessary or is it, um, is it really going to be worthwhile? Uh, I guess that's the, that's a question I'm trying to ponder. And I wonder if you guys have thought about that. I mean, I, I've thought about it. Certainly. Um, I think two, like both Germany and South Korea seem to kind of be the model of like testing everyone. Um, their numbers look different. Um, do, do you mean in regards to, 
us testing people or if the surge gets here. Well, what I mean is that we talk about the surge, but you know, the numbers that we're estimating that surge on, you know, like there's a UK study that showed, you know, if, if it hits the same way and if the percent, the death rate is 2% or 4%, then it could be between 2 million and 4 million people dead in the, in the United States. But if it's the case that so many of us are going to get the disease and be asymptomatic, which is what we're being told, then we can't know, like you and the four of us are walking around and we could all have had the disease. We could all have uh, antibodies to the disease and we never have to worry about getting it again. But we wouldn't know that because we're not going to be tested, right? Unless we get sick. Right. So, so what I'm saying is those numbers, if you're only testing patients who are sick or who are high risk, you're going to be artificially um, high in terms of, of predicting how much, how much prevalence that disease has. And so I'm just right. trying to, we, yeah. Anyway. We have an inherent selection bias in, exactly. uh, in the sample. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and we're going to need to, uh, you know, this will likely be sorted out epidemiologically based upon qualitative testing that will come what we do for other, you know, titers for, for past exposures. But I still think it's unclear of what level of immunity this virus produces. Um, you know, it's unlikely that this is going to be a, uh, a varicella-like immunity where, you know, um, you, can, you can see your prior exposure when you're a kid and as an adult, you may get reactivation of, of you know, zoster uh, um, from, that, from that standpoint. And um, now we're vaccinating our kids against chickenpox. But coronaviruses, you know, the, the four subtypes that we can't, that we previously were testing for, are common cold uh, uh, um, you know, uh, viruses. So mounting an IgM and then a prolonged IgG response is going to um, be one of the things that we're going to have to sort out um, with this with this virus. Um, and the prior, you know, MERS and um, SIRS that have come come before. From what I've read, it looked like the severity of the illness in those that lived mounted the longest uh, immunity versus those who didn't get as sick had the shortest immunity. So my fear, and not to be fear-mongering, is that are we seeing a virus which is going to be cyclical? It's going to travel the world, you know, um, and come back around again like the Spanish flu did. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's where this kind of lives. And um, I don't think we'll be, be doing PCRs on everybody, um, but I certainly think that we'll, make a, we'll have to make a national decision on whether or not we're going to figure out the true denominator at the end of the day. It is a census year, so why not? A, no. uh, a, <laughs> <laughs> I already filled my census out. Ja actually, Jamie did, and it, and it took her a lot longer. She's like, why can't we just fill in all the last names automatically? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I, I agree. I think, I, I think an accurate denominator would be, would be helpful. I think one of the things that's alarming, and I don't know the exact percentage, but um, the number of people getting as sick as they are, not necessarily suffering fatality, but even in New York, I, I think somewhere along the line of like 12 to 15% of people um, are really, really sick um, and uh, enough to be hospitalized and hypoxic and requiring not necessarily like mechanical ventilation, but um, at least supplemental oxygen. Um, and and I don't know, I could be wrong on those numbers, but. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, I'm not saying you are, that's not what the yes was for. The yeah. yes was essentially for, um, 
Why is it the case that in Omaha right now, I think as of today, I saw we've got 44 confirmed cases and only one that have been in critical care or intensive care. What's the difference between what's going on here? Is it just the case that we haven't hit the surge yet? Or is it just the case that we are identifying people better? We have better facilities. We're not as strapped. Uh, we're not living on top of one another. Well, what do you think, Matt? You lived in, in New York for all of your fellowship. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think what I can see right now is square footage. You know, we're not stacked one on, on top of the other. I mean, uh, to your, to your point, I lived in a 23 story building, you know, uh, with eight different apartments on each floor to where, and four elevators, <laughs> right? So you just think about that interaction odds of encountering an individual or encountering a surface or a situation that you are inherently beyond your control going to become uh, exposed. And then it just comes down to probably uh, penetration uh, and the dose that you, that you were exposed mm -hmm. to um, that, that leads you know, potentially to the, the degree of severity of, of, of the, of the illness, or if you're predisposed. And I think that's one of the things that we've, we've talked about the people who have gotten very sick, but there have also been people who have gotten very sick that weren't above 60 or didn't have comorbid conditions. And so, you know, who, you know, should we say, um, you know, let's go have Corona parties because, you know, we did pox parties back in the past. Probably not because you don't know, you know, who's going to, uh, um, what genetic predisposition or polymorphism that you have that, that destines you to get this virus and you be the one that, that ends up on the ventilator, um, compared to the other, you know, 99 that were, that were in the same room as you who just had malaise and, you know, a little bit of a headache. Yeah. Well, not even enough to check your temperature. You know, yeah. you're not even there yet. Yeah. So I was making reference to my childhood and I think some, for some of us, our childhood, which was before the, you know, the vaccine was there, um, for chickenpox, but I think it was because our parents felt that we, they could do that because there was a history behind that virus. And I, I was making the point that, um, you know, that the, the, our gut reaction is to look at our history and find a point in time where we've encountered such a, such an experience or our parents experience, uh, uh told us that, but because this is, you know, a, a novel virus, because it wasn't generations tracing it back, um, you know, to know that, Hey, if you got this as a kid, um, you know, you were going to have lifelong immunity and you wouldn't get it again. And we knew that it was incredibly, you know, dangerous if you got it as an adult and you weren't exposed uh, as a kid. And I think that's the other, that's the other interesting wrinkle about this virus that we're seeing out is that, you know, kids, you know, again, we hear stories about, you know, individuals who are younger that get a, have, you know, complications from this virus, but it appears to be sparing um, kids uh, to, to a great, to a great extent. Um, and, but again, it comes down to, you know, an, an inherent immunity and depth, uh, depth of immunity um, in our children. Yeah. Tony, I want to ask you about uh, some of the different um, treatments that you've seen available and, and maybe talk about why, 
you know, we're seeing reports of, of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine mixed with azithromycin may be beneficial in these cases as opposed to, say, an antiviral or a, uh, some of the HIV medications that have, have been tried. Yeah. Yeah, so early on, I think um, there, was some, there was some data behind lopinavir ritonavir, which is one of the um, older HIV combinations um, that had potentially showed activity against um, other coronaviruses. Um, but then in last week's uh, New England Journal of Medicine, there was a study that came out that largely showed no effect from lopinavir ritonavir. Um, so I think most of what I've seen is um, a lot of the groups have moved on in a couple of different directions. Um, as you know, at, at UNMC, we have a study of remdesivir, um, and we were actually very early on with, with that study. Um, so I think we were one of the first sites in the country to enroll patients in that study. So that's a that's a Gilead antiviral drug. And then, yeah, then you mentioned this, this hydroxychloroquine. So, um, you know, I think this, the use in the U.S. just built off of um, anecdotal um, case reports from, from, well, from Italy, from France, and some from China. And um, there was a few groups that have been using it um, with, with good success. And we haven't had um, really full reports of, of any randomized clinical trials. So mostly what we've, we've gotten in the literature so far is case reports. Um, but when it works, it seems to work, work pretty well. So um, there's been a couple of different groups, um, one being the AIDS clinical trials group, which um, as you know, Chris, that I, I work with, um, we've ramped up just in the last, oh, since Friday and put out a protocol um, that just was approved by the NIH to look at um, hydroxychloroquine um, versus high-dose vitamin C for prevention of, of COVID. So um, there's a number of different studies going on, um, but I think most of them have, have kind of narrowed in on these two paths with hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. Um, the other studies that I've seen, I've seen um, the Gates Foundation wants to do a study with Losartan, um, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure the mechanism. I know Losartan has some anti-inflammatory um, properties too, and I know it also has some Obviously, it has some involvement with the ACE receptor, um, but but they're gearing up for a Losartan study, and then um, I saw one more. Oh, uh, uh, tocolizumab, which which might, Matt might have more experience with in his oncology patients, but um, this is an IL six receptor blocker because um, I think a lot of the mortality that we've seen, or at least what I've read in the case reports, is um, you get this this very high level of immune immune um, activation in patients that are, that are in, you know, in severe cases of COVID. So, um, Matt, I don't know, do you have any experience with, with tocolizumab in your, in your patients? Yeah. So I do, um, CAR T cell therapy, uh, yeah. for people with lymphoid malignancies. And it is one of our, uh, go-to drugs for cytokine release syndrome. And I read that paper, uh, um, from the, the Chinese publication. I think it was 20 patients, um, you know, limited experience, but they were the sickest of the sick. Uh, and I think there was some, um, I believe it was autopsy data showing T-cell infiltrates so, uh, um, into the lungs. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, if that's true, you know, it makes uh, pathophysiologic sense to try and block IL-6 to try and mitigate the inflammatory kind of nature of, of, of that. 
you know, what is the virus doing that caused that? I think that's, that's the next, that's the, the other question as we sort this out. Um, it kind of interesting with regards to coming back to, you know, hydroxychloroquine and I've heard uh, azithromycin is those are drugs that are used, you know, uh, in rheumatology also. So what they're doing to manipulate the immune system or the immune response is kind of very similar to what tocilizumab is doing. It's trying to manipulate or, you know, not allow that uh, inflammatory storm um, uh, to occur or to slow it or dampen it or flatten the curve of the immunologic curve, if you will. Um, Same thing goes for the zithromycin. You know, it's commonly used for its anti-inflammatory properties as a macrolide, um, less so than its antimicrobial properties uh, in several other clinics um, also uh, outside of ID. So I think we're seeing some interesting approaches here. My thoughts and what I've heard about the um, the losartan or the uh, ACE inhibitors is that's how corona, the COVID virus engages into the cell is through the ACE2 uh, receptor. Uh, um, you know, so again, we're, we're kind of trying to light speed a, um, something that would take, you know, many R01 grants to figure out. Uh, in a very short period of time to come up with a therapeutic without taking out, you know, without taking people's lives because of the toxicities. I think we've heard some of the flip side of these stories of people dying um, uh, after therapies because of either the wrong dose. Um, So I think these should be done on clinical trials. Uh, You you pointed out the remdesivir being going on at UNMC, you know, as a randomized trial, so placebo or remdesivir. So, you know, even in those situations, uh, you don't know if you're getting placebo or, or the, the antiviral. But not all trials that are out there right now for COVID are, are randomized in that, in that case. It's interesting that, um, that you know, the, I think one of the things I've seen is that like methoprednisone, for example, is, is going to be contraindicated in these patients. They're, and it must be that you have to be able to mount some amount of an you know, immune reaction to fight the virus and, and a steroid, my, my guess is then that the steroid is just too potent and uh, it just wipes out a patient's ability to fight it all together. Whereas some of these other anti-inflammatories are, are treating more specific arms so that the patient can still mount a, mount a reaction, but, um, but they're not going to get this widespread, horrible inflammation. Is that what your thoughts are on this? I mean, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what's, that's, what's interesting, you know, trying to parlay some clinical experience, you know, where you're in an aloe transplant world, you know, aloe transplant with drugs like tacrolimus or serolimus or cyclosporin, you know, it's like a race car. It's a gas and a brake concept. You know, you want to have enough gas from the graph for, you know, the graph versus leukemia or graph versus cancer effect, but, but to provide enough brake so that you don't get um, you know, graft versus host disease. Mm. And so it's kind of that concept that, you know, as it kind of plays out over time, it will be interesting to see, um, you know, if, if prednisone is essentially um, too much, you know, uh, immunosuppression in these, in these patient populations. Uh, but you have to have, you know, how much underlying immunity do you have to have um, in order to, you know, fight it, fight it off? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, so do you guys think about all of you? Um... And, and kind of with that, uh, there's been some uncertainty about even non-steroidals. Um, has the, any of the pharmacologic 
or pharmacology uh, literature cleared that up at all? Do you know? I had heard that ibuprofen was, uh, I think you're making reference to ibuprofen. Yeah. Did you yeah. hear that one? Yeah, I, I heard that was lore, but, you know, that's kind of passed down rather than I can show you a paper to say, oh, right. yeah, that's been myth busted, if you will. Sure. <laughs> so, say, so I haven't heard yeah. this one, Shane. Yeah, I I've think seen a lot some of the blurbs about ibuprofen, but um, Tony, Shane, what have you seen about ibuprofen? I, I, there were some early just reports, uh, basically, um, mostly anecdotal that, that non-steroidals, uh, people who received non-steroidals early in the disease process had more, more severe outcomes. Um, hmm. I do think I, I saw like kind of like a smart brief that said the FDA um, found inconclusive evidence regarding uh, NSAIDs. Um, but, but I'm just wondering, um, if anybody has heard anything else. Well, I heard the blood type, the blood type analogy too, um, is out there about certain blood types, maybe mm -hmm. having, um, you know, more risk of, of severity of disease. Uh, um, it's so much so that I went and asked my mom if she knew my blood type. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy because, as you said, Matt, we're trying to figure out all of this stuff in, in light speed where it just takes, you know, like think about all the things you know right now about, about the diseases that you've studied years and years, all of you, years and years. And also that usually the, the, the guys that I trust a lot of the guys that will know a lot about stuff, but also know the things they don't know. And in this case, it's like, how can we possibly know even what we don't after three months of data? Um, it's just, it's just interesting and, and just sort of crazy to think about that. Well, and coronavirus was a, in some ways, a dead research topic, right? Because it was lumped in to the common cold, you right. know, category, um, and it was just something societally we had accepted. We didn't call it. You, you didn't come into the doctor's office and say you have, I have coronavirus. You said I have a common cold, uh, right? And when you did rest and you saw one of the, one of the four subtypes that we were testing for come back positive, you said, okay, they've got the common cold or they got the beer virus. Um, you know, uh, um, if you wanted to, you know, um, find a way to, um, you know, discuss it with your patient, but it's just, it was the common cold. And so now, you know, research flows to where there's money and, and need. And so, you know, I think that there was just not a lot of people working um, on coronavirus of subtypes. Now there was probably a lot of people working on MERS and SARS, you know, which were corona coronavirus subtypes. But again, you know, they happened in areas um, where they may not have, you know, been a access to patients um, and patients that, that, you know, survived those to really study them. Um, so plus it was the limited, those, those outbreaks were to my understanding, fairly limited. Do you, um, does anybody ever worry about the fact that we're going to be dumping so many resources into this disease and we're going to miss something in it that, that we won't be able to have the resources to dump into in the next six to 12 months to 18 months? I don't think I've even thought that far ahead, but I mean, it's, it's a question, again, it, it kind of comes to the question I've been pondering is, and, and maybe I feel it a lot more, you know, um, 
I'm not saying you all don't feel it, but I guess the question would be, um, what's, what's your sense from a, from an employee standpoint of, of your job security at, at, at your respective, uh, clinics, you know, um, are you worried about that? Are you, are you worried that they're going to divert so much resources away from say primary care or from these other things, or this is just kind of your part of the machine that is managing this. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think everybody's all hands on deck. Uh, in, in from that case, it's just when are you going to be called and, you know, not unlike going to war, you know, where, where are you, uh, in the military? Um, are you, you know, a supply chain person? Are you, you know, uh, making sure the, the, the troops on the front line get three meals a day? Um, or are you part of that, that front line? Um, and you may be called into as a second or a third wave and, and being prepared. Um, you know, I don't think that if I were, you know, I don't think that I'm going to be manage, managing ventilators uh, in three weeks from now. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, but, uh, but, I, but I, and I hope that's not the scenario, but if it is, that's what I'm called to do. Then, then I'll be called to do that, and I'll see this as a you know a, a chapter in my uh, in my career that I'll probably tell stories about, like my great grandpa told me stories about the depression. Yeah, um, I think after this, though, we you know as a country, we'll have to have a choice um, on how we rebuild. Are we going to you know let this be um, you know kind of a, a lesson and have like a post World War II effect where? we grow and you become that next generation, um, you know, that people talk about, um, or not. Uh, and will, how will this reshape the millennials? I think is the other, uh, the other question. I, I would say that from a psychological standpoint, you know, my perspective is, you know, just to, to, to give you all my perspective, um, you know, we, we obviously are an independent practice. So when we're not, providing primary care services, if we're relying on urgent and emergent care and, and uh, patients who feel like their, their care is, is required at this point, um, I don't have any other arms that I can lean into. You know, I don't have a, an arm for managing you know, these, these patients who, have, or who are really sick. And so um, you know, as a profession, one of the real challenges is that you know, what we're seeing is you know, this, this is having uh, an impact on a, a huge swath of, you know, dentists, uh, optometrists, independent, I would imagine, independent um, primary care physician offices where they don't have anybody else that they can, they can kind of rely on those revenue sources. And, and, and so they're looking at, well, how are we going to keep our doors open and keep our people employed for this indefinite period of time? And, um, and so I guess I'm just, I'm just wondering about, um, is it that we, in order to preserve beds in hospitals, uh, we can't do, I would foresee this as something that we can't do uh, on a repeated basis. You know, what, what's the next coronavirus? I guess my point is, is that are we going to get to the point where we can't manage diseases that we can easily manage today because we've exhausted every single resource we have? Uh, to manage to, to figure out this disease. I guess that's, that's the kind of the thoughts that are running in my head about this. Well, I, I think, I think, I mean, so from a primary care perspective in, in our office, like um, I said, our volumes are, are way down. I'm part of a labor pool um, that 
we're we're kind of like in the on deck circle or probably actually more in the hole um if it if it comes to that um that that we're called on but i think about it across the spectrum of just other doctors practices like there's no elective surgeries going on so many of yeah. the the orthopedists are they're not working um i was on a text group with some friends from medical school and there was a group of anesthesiologists um and basically they were a private group basically told them just to expect 75 percent less revenue right now and see if they're needed in the icu um if and if and when it comes to that uh, but they're not working because they were mostly managing elective cases um, a dermatologist they had opened a new building they're kind of working a skeleton crew right now with just doing emergent melanomas and and squamous cell cancers so I, and I think it does affect the whole cascade of just medicine in general. Um, but I, I do think it needs to be sort of all hands on deck. Um, my, my roommate, he's a, a nephrologist at Northwestern. I know right now they've got 50 COVID cases and they mm -hmm. converted an additional ICU to be a, exclusively a COVID ICU. Um, and then they're, they're creating some COVID wards as well. I, I just think that the surge is, is pending. Like it is, I think it's really like the, the storm is coming, I think. Mm. Yeah. No, I think it's better yeah. to be overprepared right now, looking kind of outwards in Omaha to be overprepared and then say, gosh, it wasn't as big of a wave as we expected it to be rather than be caught, you know, on the beach staring out. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's a general consensus. I mean, I think that's a general consensus that, that, we have we have sort of elected as a society to to take and and like I said at the beginning you know I don't know enough to go against that uh, but it does it does make me just think about um, you know what potentially if we're if we are on the wrong path what does that potentially mean for the rest of us you know for society in the long term is all yeah no it's a, it's a that's uh, Chris I think you, you hit a spot on I mean that is that is the the question that will come after this is moved across this country, you know, in and made its impact. And then I think it's really going to be a waiting game to see, you know, how quickly can we all come back online and in what capacity, right? I mean, I think this is going to put a lot of biz, small businesses, you know, on the on the edge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but and then the question is going to be: Is it going to come back around again? Uh, um, and if it does, can we at that point, do we act differently? Do we have a vaccine? You know, do we have a, a treatment plan um, that that isn't that allows us not to uh, react like this again? Yeah. 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 Chris, I can tell you on the academic side, you know, we pretty much sh completely shut down all didactic teaching on campus. Um, We've allowed our our fourth year students to um, continue to engage in their their, their uh, advanced practice clerkships. Um, on the medicine side, I don't know, Matt, you might have heard this, but they actually pulled the med students out of um, any direct patient care that happened about a week ago now. So yep. you know, these are things that I I never in my career would have thought that I would have seen. Um, but having said that, we've adapted quickly. And we've, you know, we've pushed a lot of our teaching to Zoom pathways, those type of things. Um, you know, on the clinical trial side, 
we've we've halted every clinical trial in our network that is not an essential treatment study. Um, you know, we simply can't be tying up any beds with with study participants that are not you know in some sort of essential treatment study. Um, so having said that, it's it's kind of grinded things to a halt on my on my research side. Um, but on the flip side, you know, there's there's been these these COVID opportunities that have sort of filtered down towards towards my lab that might be um, something that we can jump on. But I do fully expect, um, you know, our HIV trials to get back up and running. You know, my hope is sometime this summer. So um, I do think there there will be. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a, a backside to this thing, and it's just a matter of, of what it's going to look like um, when we get there. So crystal ball, we'll wrap this up. I want to ask each of you, um, best case scenario, worst case scenario, when do we get on the other side where I can walk across the the street and high five Matt and when I'm not going to have the psychological aspects of worrying about if I high five him, if I'm going to wind up with COVID or I can, I can go on a run with, with Shane and, uh, and afterwards we can, you know, we can fist bump each other and not have to worry about transmission <laughs> and uh tony you your your daughter and my daughter can play basketball and then we can have some chats about mm-hmm. the, the latest hiv clinical trials in a way that uh is not uh social distancing so best case yeah. worst case crystal ball what do you guys think go ahead tony you're first um i think best case scenario we're probably looking at end of april just in my view um I think worst case scenario is that we, you know, go into May and then like Matt said, this thing recrudesces in the fall. I think that's, mm. you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, our kids being out of school. <laughs> they're not you know, going back the, till the, Christmas. And not go, exactly. I'm thinking, you know, if they're going to call school for the rest of the spring semester, you know, what happens if this thing recrudesces in the fall? Are we going to call the fall semester too? I mean, um, so I think that's worst case scenario. Shane, what do you think? Uh, I, I'm almost 100% on board. I was, best case, I was thinking May. Um, worst case, um, we kind of get through the initial, the initial wave, uh, May, June, and then fall time comes around and it peaks again. Mm. Um, I think Spanish flu had three phases, uh, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so hopefully it doesn't follow that model. Matt? Yeah, I just think that, that... shut Omaha down, Matt? Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, you try to... I seem to... Uh, my calendar is ruled by holidays, right? And so the next one coming up is Easter. Uh, and I think Easter's too soon. And I think that could be the inflection point where people start to get uneasy about what's going on and try to expand and and i worry that um that could be a second blip on the radar uh i think it's just probably given the data that we're seeing is too easter is too soon mm. um, to let our guard down um, i agree you know may june i am concerned uh about you know um the ability to track this around the world because the second we allow it, you know planes to fly internationally uh, we we open up the the channel of of human you know traveling and I you know we talk about where we go to travel you know yeah, Chris all I mean, the time uh, um, you know I think it could be you know one of those things where the Spanish flu had three waves but this is just a continuous ripple um, and then we're going to have a big societal 
you know, um, issue on our hands is because there is going to be a crossroads of where um, of doing business and doing business healthy. Uh, and, you know, we can't live underneath a shell. We don't have a, you know, a COVID force field um, yet. Uh, um, and, and you know what, there is something about the healing touch. I mean, that, that is, that is known and it, it is not the same, you know, doing this, um, you know, through a phone is not the same as all four of us sitting in your basement, uh, and doing it. Um, when are we going to feel comfortable? I, I don't know if we'll ever feel comfortable again. I mean, it will, you know, when, how much. And how deep will this experience go? I think is going to be told in the next three to four weeks. Mm. Um, we're already we're already feeling it. You know, there's if you're not, uh, then I'm concerned. If you're not feeling, you know, feeling the anxiety, uh, it's appropriate. It's human to, to to feel that. But how how deep does it go? Um, I think you know we'll we'll uh, we'll know in the next three to four weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, the thing that I keep coming back to is, you know, f- again, for, for the, the, the docs in my profession that I run around with, they all own their own practices, like I was saying. Yeah. And, you know, you go, you're humming along, humming along, your practice is doing amazing. And I think almost forever now, or for the foreseeable future, every single one of these docs in the back of their mind is going to think, within a week, my practice could be completely different. Right. And like that's, the psychological impact of that from a business standpoint, from a, a managing a business standpoint, um, I think, I think it will, you know, I think it'll strengthen those of us who are, who have the resolve to, to keep pushing forward. And there are a lot of us. Um, but I think, I think it will potentially create a situation where people remember this and, and, and that will dissuade them from trying to take some of the risks that are, um, that are inherent in starting a business. Yeah. And that's not just for my profession. That's probably for any, anybody that's going to start a business. Yeah. I think cash on hand is going to be an interesting concept and capital investments going to take a new definition, you know, uh, um, and where you're, you, you, you talk about resources, you know, uh, and prior prioritization, you know, uh, comes back around, uh, again. And I think it's going to take, um, time for this to, you know, this is going to have a lingering, effect um just because of the experience yeah even if we even if we don't have massive numbers in omaha and you know if we are able to keep you know just in our area the death rate down um you know i still think it's 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 left its mark yeah i think um you know, I, I, I'm, I sort of would say I was blessed to be to come out of school when uh, the 2008 crash occurred, because it it uh, forced Jamie and I to figure out ways to to be really um, financially independent as much as we possibly can. So, uh, so I think you know that helps you weather the storm, and I think this will probably do the same thing for businesses that survive it, is they'll they'll realize like okay, well, we, we probably always have to be ready for something like that. And we need to be able to figure out ways through it. So anyway, um, yeah, it's crazy times, guys. Well, thanks a lot for being on tonight. Um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your perspective. I think it was uh, really helpful to me. Um, hopefully next time we can do this, we, we can do it face-to-face in person. 
Yes, sir. I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Yeah, I think a lot of us are.